0: Good morning. get to be in God's Word this morning. Yeah. And we're going to jump into what Spencer just read, which is a pretty well-known parable. But if we're honest, it's a pretty misunderstood parable as well. If you're a botanist, that means you do a lot of stuff with plants, you probably totally understand this parable. But for the rest of us, this one's a little confusing. And so we're going to unpack it. We're going to walk through it. Jesus speaks to his disciples. He speaks to 11 of his 13 apostles, the ones that he's going to send out and really are the actions of theirs are documented in the book of Acts. He's speaking to them. They've, he's just washed their feet. Judas has left and he's talking to them and he's going to proclaim this truth to them. And so as we listen in, as we get to hear what happens, I would encourage you to not think about how you think abiding is or remaining in is, I would encourage you to just take a moment and look at the text and see what it actually says. Last week, we studied Jesus' words to these future apostles about the Holy Spirit who would come into the world and would come and essentially replace Jesus as far as being the one who was going to be doing work within the believers around the world as Jesus went back to the Father. Jesus is going to use this analogy And again, it might be something that's simple to some of us, but some of us may just not understand it. So let's look at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. The vine was something that the Old Testament alluded to in Israel. God's people, a set-apart people who God made as the family of God, were known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel, as some of you may know, was Jacob, who wrestled with God, and God changed his name to Israel all of this is news to you, you're not familiar with all of this, I'd encourage you to read Genesis Genesis, chapter 32 through chapter 35 and get to know this a little bit better. So Israel, God's people, were known as the vine. But here Jesus is going to represent himself as the vine, which creates some problems for those who do not understand the gospel. For the Jewish person who was in the bloodline of Israel, there was an amount of spiritual elitism that took place because often the gift of God would be taken for granted. Now, I'm so glad that's not the case anymore as Christians, right? We never take God's gifts for granted. But Jesus is now completing what the Old Testament alluded to. God's people would be a people who were identified by what? By God's Son. Jesus is saying that salvation is not because of your bloodline, but salvation is because of his sacrificial blood. You aren't born into being God's people. You are adopted out of sin's dominion. So Jesus begins with, I am the true vine. This is the final of seven I am statements that he says in the book of John. He's already said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then he says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 10, verse 7, he says, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And then in verse 9, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And then in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And then just two weeks ago, we studied John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, these are the I am statements, and they're pointing out Jesus' deity. As we have said, he is not, he is explaining in John 15, he's saying he is the true vine, that he is the one that salvation is identified by. Strengthen this life, Christians, church, peoples, strength in this life must proceed from the vine if we're connected to him meaning adopted, meaning we were chosen, meaning we were grafted in. Without being connected to the vine, we are by nature barren. We are without fruit, and we're going to specifically talk more about how Jesus uses this metaphor for those who are actually justified by God, because when you're justified by God, you're supernaturally sanctified by God as well. So we're talking about sanctification. At COV, we talk a lot about sanctification. We think that we shouldn't be satisfied with just being justified. We believe that when God saves someone, he grows them to look more like himself. So we're talking about sanctification. Sometimes it's known as spiritual growth. Sometimes we replace it with Christ-likeness. And it's as we grow in the fruit of the Spirit. It's fruit. It's not fruits. It's fruit of the Spirit, but there's many different attributes. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as God grows us in these things, we start to look more like Christ. But bearing fruit in the Christian's life is not optional. Let me say that again. It is not optional. It is corroboration of your salvation. When we bear fruit, it shows that God actually has not only redeemed us, but he's growing us to look more like him. And those who have been justified are being sanctified. Those who have been born again grow. So he says in the second part of that verse, and my father is the gardener. In other translations, it says the vine dresser, he does the work, God does the work on the tree and the branches as they do or don't bear fruit. Verse two, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, which while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Pruning and cutting off are drastically different things. I don't want to use analogies for this, but I just want you to hear that. Pruning and cutting off are drastically different things. And the father, the gardener, cuts off branches that do not bear fruit. So we're going to have to do some work today. Because I think some of us misunderstand what this means. I think we can start to build a theology that isn't biblical when we think that this means Christians who are not bearing fruit. The problem with that is how often scripture talks about fruit, and that God is the one who produces fruit in his people. But what does fruit mean? How do we define fruit? What are we looking for? Now, let me be real, real talk. Up until about 10 years ago, I was pretty convinced that the fruit that the Bible was talking about were all the people that I ignorantly thought that I had led to Christ. Some of you were here. And I had thought, well, because I led you to Christ, then that's the fruit that this text is talking about. See, listen, and it's going to feel like an exaggeration, but it's not. I had spoken in front of hundreds of thousands of people. I had seen tens of thousands of people make commitments to Jesus, either by practically walking down an aisle, raising a hand filling out a card, praying a prayer, confessing to me or others that they had either accepted Jesus, received Christ, gave their lives over to Christ, or submitted to Jesus' lordship. Here's the thing. No matter how you say it, it is God who produces repentance. It is God who produces faith, which is a gift. It is God through the Spirit opening our eyes to his word that we can even come to Jesus. So I'm probably very late to the party, if I'm honest, but I came to the realization that I don't save people because there's a Savior and his name's Jesus and he's way better at it than I'll ever be. See, that's God's work. So that fruit that is being spoken about here can't be all the people that I thought I saved. That's not the fruit he's talking about. I think the other misunderstanding that I and probably many of us have had is that these branches that we think were Christians... That they were Christians, but because either they weren't trying hard enough, or we think that Satan misled them away from God, they fell away. Here's the thing about the gospel being a gift, okay? I need you to hear this. I'm not going to stop saying this. If the gospel is a gift and you can't take credit for getting it, you did nothing to earn it, there's nothing you can do to lose it. And that should actually bring you a lot of comfort. Yeah, but Tim, you don't know what I do. Yeah, and you don't know what I do. But the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead resides in me. You know why I know that? Because I've bared fruit. Well, leading people to Christ? No. We'll get to it in just a second. It was a gift. The gospel's a gift. And God says, no, take backsies. But what about the people that you were convinced were Christians? Okay, now we're going we're gonna to have to do a little bit of work. This might get a little uncomfortable, but why should this be the first time that that happens to anybody? See, the people that we know were convinced that we're Christians. They quoted scripture. They attended the same church services that we did. They have, may have even looked holier than we do. They may have raised their hands and worship. They may have highlighted the heaven out of their Bibles. See what I did there? Huh, huh, huh? I'll say hell later, but huh, huh? But they're not following Jesus anymore. So that must be what Jesus is talking about here, right? No, that's a hard no. This isn't what he's talking about. Listen, we're terrible judges of people's hearts. Can we be honest about this? And because we're terrible judges of hearts, we attempt to assume the heart because of the actions. But as we said last week, God looks at the heart and then interprets the action, not the other way around. Now listen. That's natural for us to only be able to look at actions because we can't see the heart. And in some cases, it's the best we got. But God knows the heart and never, not everyone who looks like a Christian is a Christian. Does that spoil anything for any of you? Going to Taco Bell doesn't make you a taco. And perseverance is an example of the Holy Spirit in someone. Not isolated expressions that don't continue on. How many people have we seen go to a retreat or go to a conference and have, pun intended, a come-to-Jesus moment, and then when they get back or come down from the mountaintop experience, they turn and go either back to normal or they revolt even more than they did before this scenario? This isn't because the gospel didn't last. It's because their faith wasn't genuine nor God-gifted. Look at what the apostle Paul says in First John chapter 2:19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. This may sound like bad news, church, but I'm going to be optimistic, and I know it happens once a year. I'm going to be optimistic because I think this is actually really great news because of this. I have known people that I was sure loved Jesus, and those same people seemed to take an off-ramp from their faith, and I started to worry about it, and I started to go, what did I do wrong? Why didn't I share enough? Why didn't I say enough things? Maybe I should have quoted Romans more. Maybe I should have used the SV. What am I doing wrong? But if God has sealed them and they run, God will get them back. and That's good news because they are his, they're not mine. In the parable of the prodigal son, which really should be known as the lost two sons, it says in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about this prodigal son who wanted his share of the estate, and he ran off to go do things on his own, and, and then he ran out of money. And here's what it says in verse 17. These are Jesus' words. When he, the prodigal son, came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And if you've read this parable, you know that the father's like, ah, da, da, da. relax, I got you. But that, this is said in the context of a parable to the prodigal son where Jesus explains to some religious folk that God extends grace to a sinner who repents, but first they must know that they're in need of grace, that they're in need of help that they're in need of a Savior. So, if the branches that are cut off are not Christians who have stopped producing fruit but are actually not Christians at all, what is the fruit that a Christian produces that God prunes? Well, let's go to Jesus's words. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most well-known sermons in all of history, he's about to close the sermon, uh, Laura's going to come up and play piano, like it's just this opportunity for him to just point out what's going to happen and tell people to repent, and here's what he says. Therefore, in verse 24 of Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine, where do, we, where do we find these words? Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. Do you smell what he's cooking? See what I did there? Sorry. See, it's this obedience that produces fruit. You guys are never going to be able to read that part ever again. But that's what I think, so now, haha, you're welcome. It is this obedience that produces fruit as we do what God has for us, To do, Some of you are like, well, what does God want me to do? Obey his word. That's what God wants you to do. Straight up. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. We are God's poetry. We are God's A plus paper from third grade on the fridge of gods. We are important to God, but we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Prepared in advance for us to do? Relax, all it means is predestined. Ha ha. And as we walk in these good works, which are obedience to God's word, the fruit of the spirit is produced in us. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the spirit is love, it is joy, it is peace, it is forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is what God does produce in his people. So you can't come to me and say, well, I'm getting really good at peace, but I suck at gentleness. No. No. God is holistically growing you to look more like Jesus if you are His. And we ultimately progressively grow to look more like Jesus, not through human effort, but spirit led obedience. And God will prune. Do you guys know that God tinkers with us? He will give us opportunities to grow, He will remove things from our lives that hinder us from fruit bearing. He will take away situations that we want desperately in our flesh, but are terrible for our spiritual growth. Listen, God doesn't sanctify with pillows, and you cannot microwave maturity. It's impossible. So, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's, he's pointing to Jesus. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, "My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones He loves. And He chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? I'll tell you, absentee fathers. But that's not our God. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. But here's what I know. You all can think of a time in your life where you were not happy about a situation, a circumstance, something that was go- you were going through, and you look back at it now. And you go, God, you were good to not let me go into that relationship, to not take that job, to not move to that place, to not do this or that. Why? Because God is good and he knows what you need more than you do. The writer of Hebrews quotes the Psalms and says that God disciplines those whom he loves and we ought to remember that our circumstances are not in retaliation for our sin, but our opportunities for growth. As I have had challenges these past few months, and I've shared most of them from the pulpit, but I'm not gonna rehash them. I keep getting reminded that no matter how frustrating or impossible it is for me to control a situation, even though I'd really like to, God's growing me in it. Somehow, even if I don't exactly know how the moment, that re- in the moment, how that moment or that circumstance is gonna grow me, Understanding that the things I'm going through, understanding that the reality that God's in control, understanding that God actually wants to use that tough stuff, it actually makes it more bearable. And it reminds me of God's love, that fruit is being produced because I am a branch connected to the vine, and the vine is Jesus. We possibly have all prayed that we'd be more fruitful. Show of hands, anyone pray that you'd be more fruitful? (laughs) Okay, but rarely do we actually think of the consequence of that prayer. We don't think about the pruning that takes place for fruit to become apparent. I'm attempting to think every day in every circumstance, whatever's thrown at me, whatever I'm encountering, it's not because of bad luck if it's negative or because of something I did to earn it if it's positive, but I try to look at the circumstances as a way that God is pruning and growing me to look more like him. God knows what we need a lot more than we do and that doesn't just mean we need what we need as far as just to survive but he knows what we need in order to thrive in Christ likeness. All right, we've done two verses. Oh boy. Verse 3, here we go. You're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the disciples, 11 of the future 13 apostles. Jesus doesn't say that the disciples who would become his apostles were clean from sin, even though some people want to interpret it that way. But what he's saying is the word of God is also what the Lord uses to prune us, to sanctify us, and make us more fruitful. It cuts away dead wood. It cuts away bad habits of belief, like I'll give you one, quoting man rather than the Bible. The word cleanses us. The word sanctifies us. The word, and adhering to God's commands, check it out, grows us. Not memorization, even though there's nothing wrong with memorizing the Bible. But let's not treat the word of God written by the spirit of God as a textbook. But as the living and active word that is a gift so we don't have to guess about who God is. So we don't have to guess if he loves us. And we don't have to guess at how to love him back. In Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 27, uh, if you keep reading, it also calls out wives. So I'm not just talking about the husbands here, but here you go. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless listen our salvation comes through jesus's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the dead our sanctification our christ likeness our cleansing comes through our spirit-led obedience to his word verse 4. he says remain in me as i also remain in you no branch can bear fruit by itself it must remain in the vine neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me so real quick what do other translations say instead of remain Abide. Remain in me, and in other translations, abide in me, and I think we misrepresent abide in English in 2020 more than we do remain in. Abiding tends to become some action we attempt rather than evidence of who we are. Remain in me is not a warning to do something as much as it is a result of who God has made us. If we remain, it proves that we are his. If we do not remain, if we do not abide, if we do not continually obey, not perfectly, but progressing, we prove that we're not his. But he also points to another evidence of this abiding and remaining. It's fruit. Where does fruit come from? For a branch, it comes from the vine, not from the will of the branch. There is no branch that goes, fruit. It doesn't work that way. It must be connected. It must be alive. It must be pruned because of its relationship to the vine. Without that, there's no fruit. There's no growth. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing eternal at all. Verse 5, he says it again, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. A way we can misunderstand abiding is to think it's just something we do. I've heard sermons focus on abiding, and I've heard them say, Well, abiding means prayer. And then they quote 1 Thessalonians 5, and they say, Pray without ceasing. Just do it all the time. That's abiding. Or I've heard abiding is reading the word cover to cover over and over. Or that abiding is belonging to a church and being accountable to the community. Now, it's not less of any of those things, but it isn't one of them by themselves. Abiding isn't about trying, abiding is about relying on God. That's a good takeaway, you should write that down. Abiding is about trying, isn't about trying, it's about relying on God. Which is far too easy to replace a relationship with religion by just trying harder, rather than trusting and relying on Jesus. See, remaining in the vine, and allowing him to produce the fruit in us, not by trying harder. No branches ever produce tr- fruit by trying harder, but simply by being connected to the vine. This is why here at Church of the Valley, we focus so much on the truth of the word. This is why we spend so much time going, What does the word say? We focus on the word and we focus on community because God is not gonna hold the elders accountable at this church for the people who are not in our care. He's gonna hold us accountable to shepherd and teach and lead those he has entrusted that are here. So our outreach in this community, it's not large events, sorry, we don't do that. But our outreach, ironically, is our community as we invite and care for and are available to our sphere of influence, our oikos. So don't expect your friends and family to engage at Church of the Valley because they received a flyer in the mail. That ain't happening. But maybe they will because we love one another. And by that, the world will know that we are his disciples. So you want practical. Some of you want practical. Can we just be honest? We like practical. Tim, that's great. Rely, don't Don't just try, da-da-da. So what does it mean to abide? How do I remain in? You rely on God. Well, what does that mean? I'll give you some things you can do, doers. You can read his word. But not like the world. Read it as if to believe God can actually sanctify you through the practicing of God's commands and truth. Pray. Not because you have to, in order to appease an absentee father, but pray as if your heavenly father hears and cares about the praise and petitions that you bring to him. Be accountable in your church community because Jesus is the head of the body, but the body is made up of many parts, which is all of us. And we are better together and with one another than we are isolated and alone. Because alone, without Jesus, without being connected to the vine as part of the body, we can do nothing, he says. Nothing that produces fruit. Nothing that has eternal value. That's why so many who are religious and claim to believe in God, are without joy. They're without what looks like hope because they do not abide in Christ, and without them they can do nothing that is eternally productive. So let me double down, just in case none of you have heard me yet. You do not produce any fruit by yourself. God does it through you. And no matter how good or moral you or anyone is apart from Christ, your good works are what Isaiah calls them. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 64, verse 6, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are but filthy rags. Oh, I want to translate that, but you know, no. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. God spoke through Isaiah to point out that the works of man apart from him are of no worth. They are but filthy rags. But then the Apostle Paul, he goes farther. But we have NIV, so the translation's a little softened. But here's what he says in Philippians 3. But whatever were gains to me, not gains, but like, never mind. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of, what's that word? What's that word? Surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Oh, Oh, I want to translate that that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says that anything but knowing Christ, knowing denotes experience, not acknowledgement, that anything but knowing Christ is garbage. It's excrement. It's manure. And as Biff says in all three Back to the Futures, I hate manure. See, God doesn't want your dead works. He enables you through the Holy Spirit to loving obedience. God doesn't want your dead works. He wants you to trust him at his word. So could it be that some of what we do for him today is actually more out of traditional habits? But obeying him should be out of loving him so much that doing what he says isn't difficult because it's delightful. So he goes on, verse six. If you do not remain in me, if you do not abide, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. <clears throat> you guys know what an oxymoron is? Like not like put stuff on your skin for zits and then like a moron, but like an oxymoron? It's a figure of speech in which apparent contradictory terms appear in conjunction. That's like the smartest sentence I've ever said. It means that two words don't go together. Like a Big Baby or a Microsoft Works, the word shouldn't be used together, but they are. You guys didn't get that? Microsoft Works? First service totally got it. All right. Just, all right. I thought it was good. <laughs> an unfruitful Christian is an oxymoron unfruitful Christians are not at all what God produces because Christians are people remaining, abiding, and connected to the vine. So what is Jesus doing here? Why the negative example of what happens to a fruitless branch? Is he attempting to scare the hell? See, I got to say it there. The hell out of the disciples? Is he trying to scare us? Is he taught? Well, we've forgotten where he is when he says this. He's talking in a context where Judas is congruently working out the devil's plan to attempt to defeat Jesus by having him killed. (laughs) Funny how that worked out for him. He's speaking about those who look like they are engrafted into Christ, but really aren't. Those who say they follow Jesus, but really act as if Jesus follows them. Those who claim Christ with their mouth, but live as if Christ has no value with their lives. Those who, because we have seen outward expressions of what we think is God working through them, become people that we point to to argue that eternal security isn't a real thing. Judas followed, but he didn't believe that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. Perseverance isn't what saves a person, but a person who is saved perseveres. I need you to understand the difference. Perseverance isn't what saves a person, only Jesus saves a person. But a person who is saved perseveres, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. But the unfruitful, the dried out branches that are cut away, they're discarded, they're thrown into the fire. And I don't feel like I need to unpack what that symbolizes. I think you guys have all, you know, fire, that's probably hell, right? But I'll say this. Heaven is about a relationship. We started the sermon last week with that. It is about a relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And heaven is the destination where those who want a relationship with God for eternity go. Hell is the place where God is not. You want a functional definition? There's a good one. Hell is the place where God is not. And it is literally the place where those who don't want a relationship with God go. As if to say... As you wish. If you want him truly, church, you get him truly. And if you don't, you don't. Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. In First John chapter 2, 24 through 25, the apostle John says it this way. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. Some of us think, oh, I have to try harder. But it's not about trying harder. It's about abiding. It's about relying on Jesus Christ as your sole means of salvation, as the one who's going to grow you, and your responsibility is to put into practice his word. This isn't about losing your salvation. This is about persevering. Because God's people bear fruit, and they persevere. You want to know what the point of this entire sermon? It's that. God's people bear fruit, and they persevere. Otherwise, the fruit that you think was God's fruit in a person who's ran away, who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, who doesn't persevere, it was placebo, and it wasn't eternal. All right, second half of verse 7. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Can anyone think of a way maybe this would be misinterpreted? (laughs) Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 2020 Ford Raptor. Nope. If you remain in me, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, his word is not something that abides in us if all we do is read it and then put it down. But we read it we meditate on it, and we fill our minds with God's word as the final answer in our lives. If I could do a Regis in impression, I would do it right there. Is that your final answer? I can't do it. We must fill our minds with God's word. We must know our God, not based on what we think about him, but based on what he says about himself. Then, as we ask for anything, we ask according to his word, we will receive what he promises according to his word and his character. But God doesn't give us whatever we want. I'm sorry to spoil that for all of you. He doesn't give us whatever we want lest we become spoiled brats. God gives us whatever he wants to grow us to look more like Jesus. Verse 8. Oh, we're actually going to finish. Verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. He's not saying, prove yourself. This is my Father's glory. He doesn't say anything about something that they can do on their own, but only what he can do through us, which is produce fruit. The world will know that we are his disciples by how? By the way we love one another. And this gives glory to God. Obeying and bearing fruit gives glory to God. The world will know his glory. The world will know his weightiness. The world will know his bigness. The world, I'm making up a word, the world will know his godness by him producing fruit in us. Us being transformed to look more like Jesus becomes a way that God shows off. Man, I could just look at a bunch of you and just start talking about how I've seen God bear much fruit in your lives. But then you would be like, oh, stop, right? Like, you don't want me to do that. (laughs) But we are looking more like Jesus. And he's using us as his branches to bear fruit because we remain in him. When the world wants to do any and everything to make us forget about the gospel, the gospel is proclaimed both through our words and our lives that are bearing fruit that back up our message. So let's be real. Maybe today you don't feel like you bear enough fruit. Listen, pray that God would, be, would bear more fruit through you, but trust that God's going to give you circumstances for that fruit to happen because he's going to have to do some pruning. Maybe today you feel unsure if you've bared any fruit. Let me just say this to you. I've said this to a few people in the past couple of weeks. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at what God has done in you. Do you love Jesus? Do you trust him? you want to make much of him, then you're a Christian and Christians bear fruit. Maybe today you have yet to trust this God that we preach about all the time. Who is God with skin? Name Jesus. He's the savior of the world. Maybe you are yet to, to yield your will to to what Jesus would have you do. Let me just tell you that today could be the day where you repent of your sins and by faith given to you as a gift from God, you can receive his grace, which is also a gift given from God, and begin your abiding and relying on him as your Savior and Lord. I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that there would be much rejoicing and praise in heaven as a sinner repents and turns to Jesus because of Jesus' beauty, majesty, and grace. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. But right now, I'm actually going to ask Joe, Janet, and the Fredericks to go stand in the back. You guys aren't on timeout. What they're going to be doing is we're going to respond in offering, and then we're going to respond in musical worship on the things that were said, the passage that we read, the things that have have the washing of God's word. And so we want to give you the opportunity to be prayed for. They're going to be standing in the back. If you know any of them and you feel comfortable, go up to them and say, hey, could you pray for this thing? Maybe today it's because you just came in with a bunch of baggage, and maybe you just need a brother or sister who loves the Lord to pray over you and pray with you. Maybe today the word of God has done something in you that's made you think, man, I need to change some stuff in my life. Maybe you can go back there and be prayed over. We're better together than we are alone. Maybe today is a day where you're not even sure what to pray for, but you just know that you need a brother or sister who loves the Lord to pray over you. I'd encourage you to go back there. They know how to pray for people. They want to encourage you. Maybe today is the day that you've trusted Jesus for real. Go and tell them. Go fill out a card. You can drop it in the offering, but tell one of them and have them pray for you and rejoice with you. Let's pray.